Al Anderson Afternoons, the podcast. Some hockey parents there that have talked to Global News reporter Merrick Takash, uh, who joins us on the phone now. Merrick, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Hal. How are you? I am excellent. It's been a while since we've had you on. Good to have you on. Rink life, really, I mean, everything is different, right? I mean, uh, but rink life for hockey moms and dads and the kids playing hockey, it's way different now. It's really different, Hal. I spent uh, the majority of yesterday night at Southdale Arena, and, you know, growing up playing hockey, growing up refereeing hockey, the amount of time I've spent in hockey arenas, thinking of it as, you know, kind of a vibrant place from the lobby to the spectator area, to, to the hallway, um, always loud, people getting coffee. And you know what? All four arenas I went to yesterday, um, completely silent and described by some parents as a ghost town even. I was listening to the start this morning. They had one of your hockey parents on. Um, it was a dad, and his kid was playing hockey for the first time. And I always think about COVID-19 like this, you know, for, for somebody, a young person experiencing something in these conditions for the first time it has to be really unusual and different for them right i mean they're excited about some of the traditions that come with playing the game the parties that, which were mentioned in the in the clip we started with there it's just so different for the kids too and especially the new ones that were looking forward to some of this stuff that now just isn't happening you know and and outside the rink yesterday we t- we spoke with a bunch of kids and it's it's really it's really funny to see the dynamic. It's really not seeming to affect the kids as much as it is the parents. You go to the rink, you see the kids lined up, and, you, and you're talking to the kids, and they're just excited to hit the ice, whereas the parents, uh, they can't go into the rink until right when the game or practice starts. So they're sitting in their cars while their kids are getting dressed inside and uh, proceeding to the rink and, and uh, going straight from their cars to the stands. So, I mean, there's way more chase from talking to the parents and the kids and getting both sides uh, of the story how there's, it seems like there's way more to get used to for these hockey parents than there is the kids. And as you uh, hung out at the rink and, and talked to these parents and their kids and, and watched the watch the games and the play on the ice and all this kind of stuff, I know that after we're done our conversation, I will get text messages and emails from listeners saying, we've got a pandemic, how can they be playing hockey? Is, is that something that you uh, look at in your story as well, Merrick? Did you talk to parents and kids about this? Are they all being careful following uh, the precautions? And I guess they have to be or otherwise they won't be there, right? Well, absolutely. Uh, the majority of the rink uh, uh, community center managers I spoke with yesterday said the, cl- the compliance has been very, been very good. Really, the only two kind of rules that rinks are, are absolutely required to follow is the mandatory mask mandate, along with uh, 25% capacity of any area of the rink. So that includes each individual dressing room, uh, the spectator area, and all that. But, I mean, the parents seem to be getting used to it, kind of enforcement is kind of forced upon the these individual rinks and they're responsible for making sure everything is going smoothly and the ones i talked to said uh there's been some bad apples but it's been uh, a lot better than most of them would have expected for this time of year and just keeping in mind how games haven't even started yet it's only right. practices yeah um, and the high level games don't even start till november 27th and all the house league or or community teams won't won't be playing hockey games until December. Mm-hmm. All right, Merrick, thanks a lot. Appreciate your help on this. Awesome, Hal. Thank you.
Merrick Takash, Global News reporter Merrick Takash. You can see more tonight uh, with Merrick and uh, Lisa Dutton, anchor Lisa Dutton, on Global News at 6 tonight, right after Global National. Uh, all right, let me uh, just kind of tell you what else we got coming up on the show here. After the news at 1.30, Tristan Field-Jones will have it all for you at 1.30. After the news, we're going to talk to Steve Dorsey. He is a CBS reporter. Uh, Amy Coney Bryant, Amy Coney Barrett, is uh, going to be the uh, justice, next justice of the U.S. Supreme Court. And um, the election is a week away. Now, million, tens of millions of Americans have voted. I think it's something like six, over 60 million Americans have voted. And while we likely will not have a winner on election night, I guess the election ends a week today. We'll see how long it takes to count up all the ballots, but uh, voting well underway if you compare it to the numbers uh, in 2016, about half as many Americans have voted already a week out from election night uh, compared to 2016 when Donald Trump beat Hillary Clinton. Kind of interesting. We've got a couple of Winnipeg police officers that have contracted COVID-19. We're going to talk to a public information officer with Winnipeg Police Service Next half hour at about 1.45. Dr. Joel Kettner is going to join us after the news at 2 o'clock. He is uh, a prof at the U of M, Community Health Services, but he is a former chief public health officer here in the province of Manitoba. So he had Dr. Rusin's position at one point. So Dr. Joel Kettner is going to join us after the news at 2. We're also going to talk to Ipsos pollster Sean Simpson. Ipsos has uh, got some information, and Canada's national brand is very strong, and we're going to talk to Sean about that at around 2.15. We're going to go to Taché Pharmacy and talk to Robin Small, the manager there, also a pharmacist there. I'm, I'm curious to know, and I want you to weigh in before I chat with Robin at 204-780-6868 and hal at cgob.com. Have you gone out to get your flu shot? I am hearing anecdotally, anyhow, from some people saying, Hal, it's almost like the run on toilet paper at the start of the pandemic when it comes to getting a flu shot. I'm hearing stories of death threats. I'm hearing uh, fisticuffs, almost, fights almost breaking out. Everybody wants a flu shot. Is it true? Uh, Have you experienced anything like that out there? 204-780-6868, Hal at CJLB.com, and then we'll talk to Robin at Taché Pharmacy after the news at 2.30. At about 2.45, we're going to head over to Southdale Community Center, and uh, we're going to talk to the general manager there as we continue to look at rink life during COVID-19. And as I mentioned, we are going to be giving away Santa Lucia pizza. Tough trivia coming up, likely in the final hour between 3 and 4, but we've got a large two-topping pizza to give away from Santa Lucia. So stand by. We'll either do tough trivia or maybe we'll play a round of uh, Total Recall, where you recall something from earlier in the show, which is why it's important that you pay close attention to the show. All right, I think we've got a quick caller here before the news at 1.30. Ed, is that Ed on the phone? Hi, Ed. Hi, Al. How are you today? Good. Yes, you were talking about flu shots? Yes. Yes, my wife and I had it done about a week ago, and it was a piece of cake. We put our name in at one of the local pharmacies, and they called us within a couple of days. No issues at all, eh? No issues at all. Good. And can I comment about COVID-19 while I'm on Sure. Mm-hmm. I think I, I can see the frustration on the Premier about people not listening. 
And you know, Al, it's a hard, not a good thing to say, but I think it's going to have to come down to shut down uh, the province and yeah. uh, mandatory mass. Otherwise, this thing's going to get worse and worse than ever. So, boy, I hope you're wrong, Ed. But but a lot of people are feeling the same way. Thanks a lot, Ed. I got to let you go. We got one more caller. Let's squeeze one more in here before the news. I'm sorry, I didn't get your name. Go ahead. Uh, Scott. Yeah, go ahead, Scott. Okay, sorry. Yeah, like. No trouble whatsoever. Saturday morning, went in, picked up the prescription for the amount of time it took me to fill out the form. Five minutes, got the shot. The guy was gentle. It was like getting a mosquito bite. Done. Out. Gone. Excellent. Good for you for getting the flu shot, too. Oh, I do it every year. I don't yeah. I don't want to get sick. I'm too big of a baby. <laughs> All right, Scott. <laughs> well, listen, stay healthy. Thanks for the call. I appreciate it. CBS reporter Steve Dorsey. Steve, good afternoon. Hey, good afternoon. Thank you for doing this. Really appreciate it. I want to get to the election in a bit because we're a week out today from, uh, I was going to say election day, although we probably won't know the winner on election day, but we'll get to that in a minute. Amy Coney Barrett, uh, she is going to be, I don't think it's official yet, right? She hasn't uh, been sworn in, but she will be uh, a justice, the latest justice, replacing uh, Ginsburg on uh, the high court down there, the Supreme Court in the U.S., well, it's just a couple hours ago, actually. She was ah. uh, sworn in for the second time. This is the formal ceremony. This was done privately uh, at the Supreme Court. All the justices uh, took part on it, and now she is officially uh, taking her role on the uh, on the court's bench. And, of course, uh, Dems and their supporters, Democrats and their supporters, felt that it should be uh, something that the president, whoever it is, uh, coming up, the new president, if it's Trump again or if it's Biden, they feel that it should be that person uh, who makes the choice, but they didn't get any uh, say in it because uh, the Republicans control the Senate, and so it's a it's a done deal. Yeah, not only did it, didn't they get a say in it, it happened so quickly, I think Democrats are still uh, recovering from whiplash. Um, I mean, remember, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg only died just a little more than a month ago. Yeah. Uh, in, in mid-September, and now we already have her confirmed replacement installed on the court. Of course, Democrats say this is an unprecedented rush job by Republicans. Republicans, though, say this is their constitutional duty, and uh, and I failed that. And explain to people listening now that maybe don't follow it closely, why is this such a big deal? Uh, why is it such a big deal that the court has definitely gone more conservative under Trump? Well, you've now got uh, another conservative justice replacing a solidly liberal justice, and you've got more issues confronting the court that are divisive, including uh, the what could be the election if uh, it's undecided and it has to go to the Supreme Court. Uh, that could be a conservative justice that, that rules in the favor of President Trump. Uh, they're also being confronted with absentee uh, ballot uh, cases in North Carolina and Pennsylvania before the election. But also they've got abortion rights they're considering, labor rights, and Obamacare uh, with a case coming due uh, to the Supreme Court next month. So there's a lot of uh, support now for conservative rulings, and, and, um, and Republicans feel like this is uh, a the golden era for them on the Supreme Court. 
Well, and as you point out, we don't know. It depends what happens with the election. But she may very well get involved in cases. Well, she already is in some cases. But, I mean, even after the fact, after the vote, she may be uh, involved in cases revolving around, uh, you know, a disputed election, depending on what happens. So it's pretty significant stuff that uh, that she would uh, get, uh, you know, put in place uh, before the election. Uh, I understand, Milan. Go ahead. What do you want to say? I was going to say, President Trump has admitted that as well, saying that he yeah. wanted uh, her vote uh, in case they had, for instance, a dispute over mail-in ballots. Uh, he wanted um, uh, a ninth justice on the court to help decide that case. Yeah, I see that Melania Trump, I, I can't believe this is the first time she's been on the campaign trail for her husband. Yeah, well, she's in Pennsylvania. The, the President Trump is going elsewhere and taking it toward the Midwest. Uh, she's going to be campaigning in this battleground state, which is a big focus for both candidates uh, as she tries to rally support for her husband. And I was mentioning earlier when I was uh, teeing up the fact that you were coming on the show today to talk about this, I think we're over 60,000 Americans now have voted, and compared to 2016 when Trump beat Clinton, um, that's about half as many people who voted in, in in their you know completely. So I mean, this is really an unusual year in so many ways, an unusual election down there. You know, in so many ways, it's easier to vote. In so many ways, it's harder to vote. And, uh, and you're seeing it this year in, uh, in a really unusual circumstances all across the country. Uh, you know, I, I know I voted and I took mine in an unusual way, took it to a ballot drop box. So, you know, you, you don't depend on the, on the mail. And uh, that's what a lot of other people are doing as uh, some folks wait hours in line in places like New York City just to cast a vote even before Election Day. Hmm. Yeah, I saw uh, Trump uh, on the weekend vote in person, and you're right, people are doing it in different ways because of the virus. A lot of people are are doing it by mail. Um, Listen, the national polls show Biden ahead, uh, easily ahead, but of course it always boils down to a handful of states, but even in those states it's looking pretty good for Biden, right? Uh, Yeah, a lot of polls show uh, Biden leading in battleground states. And in some cases, uh, they're showing uh, reliably Republican states are now toss ups like Mm. Georgia. And that's where Biden is today. He's campaigning in Warm Springs, which is a a retreat uh, for former President FDR. Uh, He's uh, campaigning a drive in uh, event in Atlanta. And this is how confident uh, the Joe Biden campaign is. Uh, However, Republicans say, hey, listen, um, we don't trust the polls, just like the last election, and uh, we've we've gained a lot of ground. Steve, thanks for your time. Appreciate it. Thank you. Steve Dorsey is a reporter with CBS. And, you know, you talk about some of these uh, battleground states. Well, they become battleground states that have not been in play in the past. He mentioned Georgia there. I know on Jeff Courier's show, he was talking with somebody about uh, Texas. I mean, to think that Texas uh, is uh, in play is uh, is crazy. So, listen, uh, Trump still has a chance. Uh, he proved that in 2016, and, and nobody is writing him off. But I think the chance, unless something 
Well, and I think even if something crazy happened, right, even if we had something crazy happen in the final week here, as I mentioned, over 60 million Americans have already voted. So I'm not even sure something crazy happening in the final few days before the election itself, before voting day, the final voting day, uh, will really impact the race. But we'll see. Uh, I'll be watching with interest and... uh, I guess, uh, you know, if nothing else, 2016 taught us that, taught us that uh, anything can happen. Joining us now, former Chief Public Health Officer for Manitoba and a current Community Health Services Professor at the University of Manitoba, Dr. Joel Kettner. Dr. Kettner, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Hal. Always nice to chat with you. It's been a while. Um, I'll just get you to weigh in on where we're at right now uh, in this second wave of COVID-19. Uh, uh, give us your assessment. <laughs> well, that's, that's a short question with a big, long answer. Uh, you know, where are we at? Uh, well, clearly this virus is not going away. I don't think too many people thought that it would. Uh, respiratory viruses um, are like that, and now we're coming into uh, the fall and winter season where respiratory virus illnesses typically increase. Um, It's a bit difficult to make sense of the numbers, Hal, because on the one hand, uh, case counts are going up. Uh, It's not as clear that the severity is going up in terms of hospitalizations or deaths. Uh, although they're probably going to increase somewhat. Uh, Because testing patterns are changing, uh, it's very difficult to sort of make comparisons. But having said that, uh, most people would have have thought that this time of year compared to the summer uh, would result in an increased number of cases and more transmission. Uh, the big question, I think, for most of most of people who are watching this carefully, are still the big questions that uh, we had at the beginning, which is, is this uh, going to be um, severe enough to to outstrip the capacity of our healthcare system, particularly our, our hospitals and our intensive care units, and how much a severe illness and death are we going to observe and, and amongst whom? And uh, so far, it looks like this second wave or whatever one would call it uh, is, not, uh, is not looking as bad, perhaps, as, uh, as things were, were, we, were, uh, we were worried about in the first wave. But you know what? It's, it's too early to say. I, I really can't uh, I, I make predictions about sort of what's coming up. Sure. No, that's understandable. Hey, take me behind the scenes a little bit, because you had Dr. Rusin's job at one point. Uh, I think we talked a little bit about this one other time when you were on the show, you know, politics versus uh, public health. And, um, uh, you know, the government yesterday at, at every level, all officials were pretty blunt about their talk about people, you know, getting with it here. I mean, the premier even said, uh, uh, you know, grow up and, and don't go out and, and spread COVID-19. Um, 
I'm just curious to know, because you've been in that position before and you've dealt with government officials, a lot of people that uh, listen to this show have been saying to me, well, listen, why? if this is, you know, it's it's to this point now, why didn't they mandate masks earlier? What's the responsibility of government here? And, and do you think that while some Winnipeggers and Manitobans aren't doing what they need to do right now, and that's why we've got new restrictions, what about the responsibility of government and public health officials to, uh, you know, get tougher sooner? So, how you really know how to pack a lot into? <laughs> I'm sorry. You know, so a so-called one question, but they're all connected. So, uh, so uh, I'm happy to try to answer that. The first thing I would say is we need to be clear that it is. Government, uh, ultimately, who has to make the big decisions, um, especially when it comes to policies and laws and regulations that uh, impact on people's everyday lives. Public health, you know, the, whether it's a chief public health officer or other experts, have, have to provide advice to the government based on assessment of risk and, and the severity of the illness and how it's transmitted, etc., but the big decisions need to be made by government because, especially in this situation, we can see what the broad and deep impacts and consequences are uh, of lockdowns or restrictions on education, employment, income, social, psychological comp- uh, impacts, and even the healthcare system that's been affected significantly uh, by not really the virus itself, but the response to the virus, the policies and, and, and actions uh, uh, to, to deal with the virus. So ultimately, government has to, has to wear that, and that's, they're elected, they represent the people, they have to presumably make decisions that they think are in the best interest of the public that elects them, uh, which takes a judgment that goes beyond the numbers, of numbers of cases or deaths or, or all of those other things. And, and therefore, it's government really, I think, that has the ultimate responsibility to, to communicate to the public. Yes, the public health um, officer uh, needs to explain the medical and, and um biological and public health aspects of this disease um, and explain why different measures can work and to what extent or to what degree they will work, none of which are perfect, whether it's masks or distancing or, or hand washing, none of them are perfect. Um, they all probably contribute something to the, uh, uh, to, to the reduction of transmission. But, but the, the, role uh, is different for the public health officer and the government. Uh, I'll just give you one example. In the Public Health Act, uh, there are some powers that the chief public health officer has, uh, such as gathering information from any sources that they feel is necessary to assess the threat. Um, but the kinds of things we're, you know, we're talking about with lockdowns, whether it's closing uh, public uh, institutes, closing down schools, limiting gatherings. It's very clear in the Public Health Act of Manitoba that any of those kinds of orders can only be made by the chief public health officer with the consent of, the approval of, the Minister of Health, and therefore the Cabinet and the Premier. So 
whereas the chief public health officer can give advice about those things. Really, those decisions are made by government. And, and in answer to your question, should government have done more? Should public health have done more up until now in terms of mandating masks or being more restrictive in, in the policies and guidelines? Well, you know, that is, that is a hard question to answer in a categorical way. Uh, there's several things to consider, one of which is, does mandating actually work? Does mandating actually change behavior in a way that uh, one might want to? I, I, I was always appreciative of Dr. Brent Lucen's uh, comments that he often made in the, in the press conferences over the last several weeks um, that when asked for more details about some of the cases or some of the events, uh, he, he said, I don't want to, uh, I don't want to get into a, um, you know, a blame and shame uh, uh, a game or however he worded it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and one of the reasons he said that, and he said, he explained why. He said, you know, if we start, if we start judging people and if we're blaming people and shaming people, they're much more likely, the public is much more likely, or people are much less likely uh, to come forward to to say they have symptoms or to be tested or to name contacts uh, or tell the truth when they're asked questions if they feel that they're going to disclose something that they did or a friend of theirs did or a workmate of theirs did uh, that uh, that they will be blamed for. Um, so this is a very very important question. I think it's a it's a it's it's one of it's one of the uh, things about the situation we're in right now that is concerning me and on my mind a lot, uh, which is what is what is the atmosphere that uh, is being created now in Manitoba and other places uh, about about this situation? Something which I think first and foremost we all need to understand that we could behave as near perfectly as possible. Um, but short of locking ourselves into our homes all day long, this uh, this virus is going to continue to circulate for some time. So, so we have to be the, the expectations have to be reasonable, and and if we had more time, we could talk about what these numbers mean and how are we really doing. And I'll just you know I'll just throw one out like. I think it was yesterday or the day before that there was a, a you know high level of concern that we had 100 cases uh, reported in one day. And I did a little bit of arithmetic with the population of Manitoba, and that is one per 14,000 Manitobans. So that means, you know, if, if we're going to say that someone did something wrong in order for that case to have occurred, you know, that's one in 14,000. That's 13,999, you know, people that didn't do anything wrong. I don't think it's a question of right or wrong, but I think it is a matter of putting this in perspective um, and certainly not panic and certainly not overreact in a way that might 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 
cause more harm than good. I mean, I don't know what the right thing to do is, Hal. I'm not trying mm-hmm. to be an armchair you know, quarterback yeah. here. I'm just raising questions. I don't have the data and details that Dr. Rusin has or the government has and, and, and have their finger on so many pulses of what's going on in society and who's suffering and who isn't and what's the economy doing here or there. I, like, I'm in no position to judge all that. But mm-hmm. I, I, I hope that... Um, I hope that people are just looking at this in, a, in an all-rounded way and not being too distracted by numbers which can be misleading. Uh, yeah, I think that's sort, of, that's sort of how I would sort of end that long sentence. Dr. Kettner, appreciate your time. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Al Anderson Afternoons, the podcast, is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere you find your favorite podcasts.